to the podcast, Jesus Has Left the Building, where we talk with people all over the nation, leading creative, outside the box, I mean, outside the church building, ministries that inspire and engage us. And we talk with people about why they have decided to create new and transforming ministries, especially during times such as these. This is the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast where ministers, writers, activists, and church leaders have left the building too, with Marta and Mandy. Today's episode, called Speak the Truth Even If Your Voice Shakes, features Reverend Dr. Benjamin Reynolds. A native of Colorado Springs, Reynolds has spent nearly four decades in active ministry. He is the Assistant Vice President of Student Services and Dean of Students at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, and he serves as the transitional pastor for the historic First Church of the Brethren on Chicago's west side. Reynolds is ordained in the American Baptist tradition with standing in the United Church of Christ. Reynolds has significant experience in activism and organizing around issues of equality, access, and community dialogue. He has served as director of the LGBTQ Religious Studies Center at Chicago Theological Seminary, director of faith communities for Illinois Unites for Marriage Equality Campaign, and lead consultant for the Table to Action Project. Using the fourth chapter of Who Will Be a Witness as Guide, we talk about the prophetic witness of the historically black church. We will also talk about creating safe places for truth-telling and listening. And we will dive into the idea of prophetic leadership, how to practice it, and what it looks like. Welcome, I'm Marta Fioriti, and I am the pastor of Black Forest Community Church, United Church of Christ. And I am Mandy, her partner in ministry and director of worship and arts here at Black Forest Community Church. We are excited to be joined by Benjamin Reynolds today. We're going to hear from him in just a minute. But first, listen to our scripture passage for today from the Hebrew Bible and the prophet Amos. This is Amos chapter 5, verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. According to Drew Hart on page 141 of Who Will Be a Witness, the prophet Amos is calling Israel to be accountable for how they treat the exploited, the poor, foreigners, and the oppressed. This kind of sacred text and prophetic tradition in combination with the Black experience in America has created a truth-telling tradition. So we have a couple of stories to talk about this truth-telling tradition that comes from the prophetic voices of the Black church in America. The first is from 2008. Um, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who's now a retired UCC minister, was serving a large Black UCC church in Chicago. This was right around the time that President Obama was running for president. He was not yet President Obama. And Jeremiah Wright was Obama's pastor. During this time, ABC News released one of Wright's sermons from a little bit um, further back. And um, 
it went like wildfire in the news. It shocked the country um, because there was this very short clip of the sermon and a very short quote taken completely out of context where Reverend White Wright said, not God bless America, but God damn America. Just those words out of context are jarring, um, but mainstream America, especially the white controlled media, took that opportunity of those words out of context to completely condemn black theology and the prophetic black church. It even got so bad that Obama tried to reframe and excuse the comment, but eventually, even though Wright and the Obamas um, had been in relationship for years, that relationship became broken. The point is, it was easier to dismiss this pastor and the sermon than it was to take a moment to listen. Wright joined with other great Black men and women spoke truth to the American empire. And that was too hard for mainstream white America. This is an example of strong prophetic leadership that has emerged out of personal experience. And really it is our job as Christians to not just dismiss personal experience, especially when it comes from those on the margins. Marta, you have a story to share with us as well, right? I do have a story. Um, it's on page 162 um, of Who Will Be a Witness, if you want to go and read it more in depth. And it's about Ella Baker. And Ella Baker, when I read this story, really in, inspired me. And I actually told the story a couple of times. It is similar to Jeremiah Wright, but different all at the same time. It is an it's another way of understanding prophetic leadership. I think that often when we think of prophetic leadership, we think of loud and performative and in the public square and, you know, famous people who really have this big, huge voice. But Ella Baker was a different story. She is known for her participation in the civil rights movement. She, at that time, had noticed that the way that it was being organized was around um, the male leadership, Dr. King and all the clergy people at the time. And it was dominated by this leadership. And when it was dominated by this leadership, it did not create spaces um, that were authentic, that created partnerships, that were in collaboration and had dialogue and were just experiences in places where real authentic experiences and stories could be told. And so she spent her time reorganizing and creating methods and systems that would allow for all those voices to be a part of the organizing um, around justice organizing. So the point for me was that here's this woman in a time when um, women didn't have voices in that way um, that worked behind the scenes to cultivate spaces for other women and for youth to participate equally in the civil rights movement. And that was prophetic. That was prophetic leadership. It created um, spaces for mutuality and respect and um, speaking across 
um, lines that might have been divisive um, and just really deeply um, speaking into that justice organizing. Um, so I really appreciated this story and actually both of them, um, how different they are. They're different genders, they're during different times, and they just really speak of what prophetic leadership can look like. As all of you know, in our episode, we uh, offer a ritual at the end of each episode. And so we wanna prepare you for that and so that you don't forget. Um, so today I want you to go and get a glass of water um, and just hold on to that for a little bit. Wait until the end and we will give some specific instructions. Welcome, Benjamin. We are so excited to have you in this space with us and grateful that you're here to in, engage in some conversation with us. One of the things we're hoping to do with this podcast is to inspire our church and other churches too to do the work of prophetic leadership. We just told two stories of modern day prophets that Drew Hart mentions in his book, Who Will Be a Witness? And we know that you have been doing this kind of prophetic work in your own way. So we're really excited to hear about how those stories may connect into Hart's work and your action into the world as well. So the first question we have for you is just super simple. Tell us, um, so everybody knows like about your work and your passions and um, especially um, during time, a time such as this, um, it's so hard right now. And so we really want to be able to inspire people um, out there and, and maybe even how it relates to this idea of prophetic leadership. So I, I should probably mention then that I am currently serving as the Assistant Vice President of Student Services and the Dean of Students at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago and sits on the campus of Northwestern University. And um, part of my call, what I sense is my call, um, has really moved um, to some extent away from serving congregations and serving students as an administrator, helping to prepare them, give them the tools that are necessary for the ministry that they're being called to. And I, I think students these days are certainly being called to places other than congregational or pulpit uh, work. Uh, I see students being involved as executive directors of uh, nonprofit organizations, doing a lot of community organizing, and um, you know, be, and also serving in chaplaincies and doing all kinds of uh, public theology as well, and that is really how I became connected with Garrett. It was through um, community organizing. I was hired by the. Uh, human rights campaign during marriage equality in the state of Illinois. It served as the faith director and really trying to um, what they called bring on board or listen to the African-American voices of pastors who were not against marriage equality in the state of Illinois. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. And that certainly was the case. There were uh, numbers of pastors who were not against uh, marriage equality, but they also understood how important it was to work as a community, not only to think about um, uh, marriage equality so much because marriage equality was not a black issue. Uh, mm -hmm. Black folks didn't care about <laughs> marriage equality per se. What they were concerned about is, am I going to be able to feed my family? Am I going to be able to educate my ch children? Where will we live? Are we going to be um, uh, living in a more just society? And if we could get folks who were on board marriage equality to see some of that and how that would sort of hold our community in different ways and sort of take take us to another level of community. Well, that didn't happen. Marriage equality passed, but I'm not sure that the folks on the south side of Chicago, where most of the Black people live, um, I don't know that they felt uh, that the communities on the north side have come to their aid necessarily around some of the other issues that plague our uh, communities, such as gun violence and drugs and, and some of the other um, evils of our society. So, um, and I, so I, so I, my, my thing is, um, I believe that um, people, students are being called to these places to work with on the ground uh, with people who, who really are concerned about the conditions of the life of the people that live in these communities. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think that sort of speaks to the prophetic voice of the black church, which is always been preaching, speaking truth to power, mm -hmm. saying this is on the one hand, the truth as you, you see it, but the reality of our situation, our lived experiences say something totally different. And let's talk about that truth. Let's center black life and other people of color in that way so that these voices on the margin then become the focus of what's going on in the, in the mm -hmm. center of the communities. And you would think and hope that like the church would take on some of that responsibility um, in the midst of all that, I mean, I know that a lot of these young new seminarians who are coming up, you know, are sort of over um, congregational life. Um, I think there's a huge majority of people. Um, and it's probably because the church hasn't adequately served um, those communities in, in the way that they needs to be served. And so they're looking to do this other work that might have other meaning. Do you, does that come up? Like, does those kinds of things that students are grappling with. And, and I know this is going off script, but um, she usually always, does. It's fine. I do every <laughs> single time. But now I'm, I'm curious because you work with these students who are being called to ministry, you know, and as someone who is in a parish and loves the parish and sees so much hope in the parish, I also am really aware of the decline <laughs> of the parish in, in this country. And so this is part of why we're having these conversations is, is do you see what, how those can be integrated better or how we can inspire these young people to do this from the platform of congregational life? I don't know if any of that makes sense, but. So Marta, in some ways I am a traditionalist. When okay. Church. You know, I like, you know, I'm into the high church liturgical kind of uh, worship pipe organs, you know, all of that. 
Well, <laughs> uh, my seminary students are not that way. Right. <laughs> they're, they're, they are dreaming of a church that is quite different from the church that I grew up in or the church, you know, that we may know as church. Right. Uh, and it really takes on the hands and feet and legs uh, of, of Jesus. It is about how do we have church uh, in a bar? Mm -hmm. uh, and we have a church in Chicago that has just done a tremendous job of creating this space in a place that is typically a bar, but on Sundays it is mm -hmm. church. You know, uh, so they've so they've actually gone out to the community and made some of these spaces church because that's where the people are, and so they're going to the people instead of the church. And I think it's very interesting time because those of us who love church, church buildings, stained glass, and all of those beautiful things uh, are unable to even go into these spaces now because of COVID. Right. right? So we have these buildings laying waste. Um, and 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 we're sort of seeing the need to be with people in a different way. Um, and, and that is what I hear from our students all of the time. Let's, let's do something that is totally drastically different than going to church. And we struggle with that in the seminary in terms of how worship is. We have a very traditional worship and students don't attend. But if right. you say you create the worship, then they come up with all kinds of creative ways to make worship happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we have to be able to, to, to hear and, and to get a pulse of as we're thinking about how do we think about what church looks like in the future. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting thing that, you know, I mean, that's what this podcast really is for Marta and I, at least, um, and, and the people we've, we've drug along with us to have these conversations, um, because COVID has forced us to really consider, like, we cannot meet in our building safely right now. So here we are having these conversations about um, what it means to be the church in this space. And then my hope, our hope, I think, is that um, when we get, oh my gosh, when we get on the other side of this pandemic, how do we put all of that together so that we have the beautiful tradition of who we have been, but we don't lose this innovation of who we can be um, is just so interesting and compelling. And I love that you have this experience with these seminarians um, who are, who are, you know, chomping at the bit to make these things happen. It gives me hope that, you know, we won't just die um, in the next 50 years, that some beautiful new thing will be rebirthed out of out of this moment. Yeah, I trust that that is is certainly true. Um, if we allow the times to listen to the times mm -hmm. and to read the times and find out what's needed and build church around those things, I think one of my challenges and concerns is how do you do that intergenerationally? Mm -hmm. I'm on board with it, but I think about folks who are maybe older than I am. Uh, and senior citizens who just are struggling to really try to, to keep up with some of the new ways of being in church, including Zoom church, right? They, they don't, right. The technology is just- uh, it, Or listening to a podcast. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, there's a church that I, I'm working with in Chicago and we actually went out and bought 
um, these little, uh, what are they called? Uh, some sort of device where uh, the seniors can actually uh, listen in to Zoom, can you know log on and actually participate in Zoom. So it's not a real computer necessarily, mm -hmm. but it is a device that sort of looks like a laptop uh, or a, um, a iPad that they can use to help to help them be present. And so they're learning that. And so being patient with with folks as we make all of these different mistakes uh, as we try to understand what Zoom Church is really like or can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I yeah. definitely appreciate the deeply humanitarian piece of it. And I think that's what needs to come along with all of this is, and I think maybe if, if, we, if we do that humanitarian piece so, so, so well, and that tradition next to it, maybe we can, we can bring it along. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think the human, humanitarian piece is huge. Yes. Yeah. So shifting a little bit into um, this chapter of who will be a witness. Um, this chapter is called Talking Back, Talking Black, Unveiling America's Sins and Its Myth of Exceptionalism, which is quite a title. Um, but the Black prophetic tradition calls us to read U.S. history from the margins not from the seat of power. So like you were talking about just a minute ago, Benjamin, um, what painful but generative possibilities do you think that this practice opens up for us? What, what, is it, what does it mean? What possibilities are there when we really listen to, when we look at history from the margins? So, so when I was reading uh, this chapter, I couldn't help but think about when I'm reading a book uh, and a history book and I'm trying to understand the implications of what I'm reading with who I am or how it hits me. So I typically will write a note in the margins, right? And so, mm. Um, and if you were, uh, either of you were to take the book and read the margin, just what I've written in the margin, you would get a sense of, of my lived experience. Yeah. And that. I, I think, I think that is what, what Drew is trying to get at. It's this idea that, um, history says one thing about, about the narrative, but there's a totally different narrative that we're not reading, that we're, that we're not willing to listen to. And if we would but listen to and read that narrative, that will help us. I mean, it's painful because we'll hear stories and we'll learn a lot about peoples that we didn't know before. But I think that's what, what becomes very, very important for us to consider. Um, mm -hmm. So it's actually taking that from the margin and it becomes the center instead of right. the, the, the narrative that America right. is great, that America is you know, perfect and wonderful. Well, America has not. So when I hear um, make America great, uh, you know, I, I worry about what does that mean for someone uh, from my heritage where America has not been great. I've right. not known America to be great. And so I could certainly identify with Drew as he's talking about that story of yelling out USA, USA uh, in the chapter is, you know, it's like it happens, but it's like, wait a second, you know, 
let me think a minute about that. You know, it's so, uh, it, and it's very painful. Uh, to be honest with you, it's very painful. And I think all of our brothers and sisters who are willing to uh, engage these stories in that way will find it painful, but also helpful. I think you have to go back through it in order to to heal and to to come a, come away with it uh, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that idea of reading from the margins. I mean, it's uh, the visual of that is is just really powerful to me. Um, I appreciate that image. Thank you. So the third question is, how might the church, and we started to talk about this a little bit earlier, um, be reformed by your particular work um, that you're doing? And we, we had talked about that, but what also, what practical concrete ideas or practices um, from ministry would you suggest for congregations right now in the midst of COVID, racial inequality, and the upcoming election? One of the things we want to just leave people with is something to actually do each week or to engage or to even just think about as a possibility. You know, sometimes intellectuals will put out these big huge things and churches are like that it's just too much so we're trying to offer these really concrete practices so our congregation our little small congregation i'm working with a um, church of the brethren chicago first church of the brethren and i'm not brethren but I, i'm united church of christ but i'm working with this congregation and one of the things that we've done well, there's a couple of things that we've done. Recently, we watched uh, a, a documentary called A Beautiful Thing, and it tells the story of some broken lives of young men who were living on the west side of Chicago, uh, just how they were trapped in a world that they almost did not get out of, and they connected with a rowing club, and they became the first group of Black men who, who rode just, you know, the boat, right? And they tell the story. It's a beautiful documentary that you would love. It was important for our congregation because it, the congregation is situated there uh, in on the west side of Chicago. Mm. And so we watched that together uh, on Zoom and had lively conversations about it. And I think that was helpful. Most recently, what we've done is uh, watched the documentary, um, it's, it's, it's really the last manuscript of James Baldwin. Uh, I think it's called This House, but the, the documentary is called um, I'm Not Your Negro. Mm -hmm. And we watched that together and just really had robust conversation about it. Very important because this congregation was historically white, became uh, majority, major, the majority of the congregation is now black, uh, but it's a, it, it's a, it's a mixed congregation. Okay. And so in, in many ways it's beautiful and yet we're struggling with what does that tension, how to hold the tension. And so to have that conversation and ask some really, really hard questions, um, but also to think about James Baldwin who's writing this in the sixties and how prophetic it is today. 
I mean, mm -hmm. we were amazed at it. It is like James Baldwin has his ear to 2020 and where we are in terms of race relations in this country and writes about it. Um, and so I think that is, those are two things that I would just offer uh, and recommend. Um, and, 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 you know, bringing in other folks to the conversation, folks who consider themselves Baldwinians and have read uh, a lot of his work who can help to sort of frame the movie itself, I think would be helpful. Um, but, but there are ways to get folks listening um, and enjoying the conversation too. Um, so it doesn't have to be just this sort of, um, you know, you're all bad people kind of conversation as much as it is, how are we going to think about this history together? Mm -hmm. And having that kind of conversation, which has yeah, been very, super very interesting since you have a multi-racial congregation to be able to have those conversations like you're really kind of blessed and yeah. that it would I, I I would want to be a fly on the wall <laughs> um, listening to your conversations yeah. about that. I think um, one of the things that we struggle with is you know we it's a small congregation and it's an aging congregation. You know, I am perhaps the youngest, maybe I think we have one woman who's younger than I am. And she has two children that are now, uh, one's in college and one is in uh, junior high school. And, and, and those are the youngest folks that are part of this congregation. And so it's an aging congregation and, and we worry about what that means for the future. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, uh, films are a, just a great tool for teaching. Um, I think that um, they're accessible and, you know, and I think storytelling, you know, in that way is super helpful for people to really dive into really a difficult, difficult stories and difficult narratives. For some reason, film is able to um, go beyond um, that for us, which I think is really, really great. And I think part of uh, what this chapter is is talking about is sort of breaking open those really difficult spaces to have those conversations. Um, so, are those films available like on Netflix or Amazon? Or they are Amazon. Both Prime. of them. Both of them are on Amazon Prime. Okay. I'll put them in with the resources for the okay. podcast for sure. And there's a book for a most beautiful thing. I think that's the title of the book as well. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it really connects into that idea of of le learning the personal experience. You know, uh, when you talked about reading the margins, then I get to know what your personal experience is. Um, I think that film helps that, right? Like you, you really get to see that personal experience. And going back to you know this the story that um, Drew tells in the book and that we talked about earlier, I think that that's one of the things that was missing as the media went on this frenzy with the quote from Jeremiah Wright's um, sermon, right? There was no personal story there, right? Yeah. It was just this, this soundbite, this clip, and they were off and running. Um, and I think that is the piece that so much of what is missing in this, I mean, we're two weeks away from the election, um, where is that personal story? Right. 
the tricky election. Um, where do we get to? Where do we get to actually hear that personal experience? Where do we get to listen to the stories from the margins, from the margins of the page, from the margins of those people who haven't been included? Um, so there's just a lot of a lot of ties there, I think, um, to all of this. Well, and I, I'm always reminded with our dreaming seminarians who have lots of energy uh, and lots of thought and are brilliant um, vessels um, that they also have to have some guidance. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, when I talked about the intergenerational concern, I think that's one of the pieces that would worry me because it's there's a tendency to discount older people and the older i get i, I still want to be included included right <laughs> and 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 there's a tendency to just think that the church means um they're they're sort of their group um on the one hand but also um, really seeing a trend of older folks returning, second career folks coming back to seminary to say, I've been a doctor, I've been a lawyer, and now I want to study um, theology because there's got to be something more in this world that I can do to bring these two disciplines together. And so uh, with those kind, with that kind of thinking taking place, one can't help but think that God must be at work on some level, creating sort of this new church for us to be a part of. So, so I, I trust that um, we are on the cusp of creating something that we don't know. We, we just, mm -hmm. we really don't know because none of us would have thought a year ago that we'd be where we are today, right? And we, we, what, we, what, what I trust is that we can give seminarians the tools, we can give our congregants tools so that whatever happens, we will have the tools necessary to build, create, and to imagine um, uh, as God invites us to that, to that place of ministry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely feel your tension, the generational tension. Um, I feel that also. Um, all the time, actually, it is because I think most of our churches, um, our mainstream Christian churches are older generations at this point. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and they, they are also as a body, they're shrinking. Mm -hmm. Um, so that is, that is something just, that is sort of the messy like story that you just want to put out there. Like, yes, we have these, we have these tensions and we don't know what to do with them. And, you know, Mandy and I are both at different seminaries doing our demon right now. And um, so I'm in with probably all your people um, that are, you know, super excited about this, this work. And that's partly why we're doing that. But um Boy, it's super heartfelt to even hear hear you say that 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 is one area that is that's hard and you don't know what quite to do because you don't want to um, you don't want to lose the church you don't want to lose people but you also know that something needs to shift right and that is 
where, where is that theory to be learned? That's what I want. Like, I want to learn how to do that. I want someone to say, okay, here's the guidebook. Um, so it's, it's just an, such an interesting, such an interesting time to, to be called to some kind of prophetic voice in this world. Um, and, and I, and my hope is, and I think sort of what Drew was talking about in his writings is that, is that we allow, um, to, our, our congregations can allow for that, the really hard voices, the goddamn America, right? And, and even, even if it's stinking out of context, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we want, there, there's, there's a message in that. People need mm -hmm. to hear that um, and, and ask, well, why not get defensive or, you know, I don't know, their ego brews somehow their America, you know, is so great and, and don't say things like that. No, like there's something in that message that, that deeply needs to be heard. And so, I don't know, there's, there's my little moment of response to all of this so hard it is it hard. hard it's hard but you know i keep getting affirmations uh i don't get them every day but i do feel that we're heading in the right direction i mean i i just feel like i mean just this conversation to know that this conversation is being had that i'm a part of this kind of conversation is is encouraging for me uh, and helps me to think, you know, the world is going to be a better place. Now is the time for um, the ritual. So if you have not already, please go and get your glass of water. You can press pause and then come back. Or if you already have your water, go ahead and take it in your hand. And I want you to lift it as if you are blessing it and take a moment to really look at the water. Observe it, give thanks for it, recognize how precious and life-giving and healing water can be. Take a drink and remember what the water can do for you and for everyone. Give thanks and let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. As Drew says, at the end of this chapter on page 172, mainstream Christians must follow the way of Jesus, which includes a prophetic witness in society capable of naming the weightier matters of society rather than becoming political public puppets for the establishment and their political and partisan agendas. If we are to experience God's deliverance, we need to be set free from the lies, idolatry, and original sin of this nation. May we have the courage to talk back and invite those in society to undergo a radical revolution of values, repentance, and rebirth so that we may begin to experience a taste of beloved community in this land. Amen. Amen.
Peace. Next week, we will hear from Kendall Ray Rothes and Aurelia Davila Pratt on how they are being witnesses as we discuss Chapter 5, The Politics of the Church, Belonging, Power, and Jesus, Our Center. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Find us on Facebook at Black Forest Community Church, United Church of Christ. And message us to learn how you can be a part of this effort to tell stories, have conversations, build relationships, and follow Jesus out of the church and into the world. To support our work, search for Black Forest Community Church on Venmo to make a one-time donation or a regular commitment with as little as $1 a month. You'll get regular communications and updates about our stories. Thank you to all those people that support and listen. We could not do this without you.